welcome to the UK Student Paramedic Podcast, made by student paramedics for student paramedics, and covering all things paramedicine, regardless of your experience and route to registration. On today's episode, we're looking at all things cardiac arrest, why we're the pros at dealing with them, how our treatment algorithms play out in reality, and some of the Gucci skills and drugs we get let loose with on the road. We're going to take you off the recess and, and into practice with some useful tips along the way. That's all to come on this episode of the UK Student Paramedic Podcast. Here we are then. Welcome along as we get stuck into this meaty topic. I am Student Paramedic Tim and as always just a quick disclaimer that this podcast is not a substitute for academic learning and should not be used in place of teaching or observation from qualified personnel. All information is correct to our best knowledge at the time of recording and myself, the podcast and its guests are acting in a personal interest and not speaking on behalf of or expressing views of any trust, university or other organisation unless explicitly expressed. Now with that out of the way it is my great Great pleasure to welcome today's guest, helping us navigate our way through this mammoth topic. It's paramedic Matt Ross. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, just to set the scene for the listeners, you are currently uh, in your greens and on duty as we uh, as we speak right now. Uh, the fact that you're able to record this for most listeners that have had any sort of exposure to placement will probably understand that maybe that means you're not necessarily typical front line, the fact that you're able to record. What's your your role, Matt? Uh, so, yeah, I'm a hot paramedic. So we get quite quite a bit of downtime. Uh, so, yeah, that's why I'm able to sort of sneak off and do this podcast with yourself. You get all of the other roles, taking the mick out of the fact that heart do nothing as well, I'm sure. You're probably used to that. All the time, time, all the time. But we, we give it back. We say, um, we turn up on scene and, uh, you know, clinicians say to us, oh, we wake you up and we say, yeah, come on, hurry up, we need to get back to our bed, our bed's getting cold and, you know, so it's a two-way thing. The heart heroes are, uh, have arrived. It's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it works in our favour. Just very briefly, for those that have not encountered heart before, what what's the sort of brief overview of, of what heart do? Uh, yeah, so we we we're essentially just paramedics. We we have a couple of extended skills, um, like intubation, and they've just brought in ketamine as well. But apart from that, we don't have any advanced training. Uh, but what we do have is uh, we get trained in certain environments and uh, the use of um, advanced PPE. Uh, so. We can uh, operate in uh, difficult environments like um, water rescue, uh, breathing apparatus, uh, like post-fire, um, terrorist incidents, working at height, uh, difficult extrications, um, and yeah, things like that. Yeah, it sounds so, quite. It sounds quite exciting. It sounds like quite a is, varied job role. Yeah, and plenty is, of downtime. Yeah, okay. plenty of downtime. I think that. <laughs> That's the only trouble with heart. It's, it sounds sexy on paper, uh, but it, the unfortunate reality is we do get a lot of downtime. Uh, like me personally, I like to stay busy, get out, uh, get out there. But um, obviously, those sort of jobs aren't always coming in. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I suppose you, you're reluctant, you're sort of dependent on what's happening around you. Now, I first uh, came across your work and, and many people may recognise you from social media, particularly uh, TikTok and Instagram, where you've got the RevivTok and the RevivGram brands. Now, these are, yeah. for anyone that's not encountered these before, these are, um, 
I guess, case study type quizzes where you you throw together uh, a situation, a scenario, and then throw in questions along the way. Um, particularly on TikTok, I find this really good, really interactive, and it's a fantastic resource for, for student paramedics. But one thing I have noticed, Matt, is the production value has improved so much over time. Most recently, uh, you did one on um, hypotension in uh, brain injuries, and there was a nightclub full of you. There was lots of you uh, in this nightclub. Uh, every role is played by you. How long do all of these videos take to, to produce? So that, that one took quite a while actually because um not um there are different versions for me so like with that one in particular i i just set the camera up started filming uh started doing a silly dance for 10 to 20 seconds quickly changed the top and put another one on and then i sort of just edited it all at the end but what what took the longest was there's a short clip right at the end what's probably about a second or two seconds long where I'm in the back of the ambulance doing CPR and but I was just trying to work out how I put that all together and so it took me what, two hours to try and work out how to film that two second clip and then um, it, yeah, it takes what about three, four hours to edit it together so I'm still getting used to all that side of things. There's some commitment but, yeah. but they are, they're really, really useful and the, yeah, the I think what I find personally is that you know, I get that the, the, the level is enough that it kind of, it does kind of test your skills. It does kind of test your knowledge. So when I get one of those right, um, it's a massive confidence boost. And actually my, my daughter really enjoys doing them with me as much as she's oh, okay. only, so she doesn't know the answer. She, I like to give her my rationale before we, we find out what yeah. Yeah, there is. It's a, yeah. it's a resource. Um, yeah, it's TikTok and Instagram for, for both of those, we can find you. Um, on there yeah 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 I'm trying to get into youtube um but I see, yeah it's just because i'm a one-man band at the moment it's just um and everything else going on like at home and you know being at work is it's quite hard sort of yeah you, know, you must film them you, you must film them at work presumably when you're on um when yeah. you are on downtime yeah so yeah when we uh, get a bit of downtime i sort of go off and do a little video upstairs uh, but yeah, it's just um, it's it's more the editing that takes takes the time. Yeah. Um, and I want I want to go more into sort of educational stuff as well. So the idea is to do like a quiz type question, and then do a follow up video um, that explains the answer rather than Joe Cal says this. Yeah. Uh, I want to back it up with well, it says this because of this piece of evidence, or um, this is just how we do it, sort of thing. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, definitely go and check out Matt's work. It is, um, it, I find it really useful. And I say it is a massive confidence boost as well. Uh, getting into today's uh, rather meaty topics, nothing like starting with a, with a big one. So we're looking at um, cardiac arrest. I suppose we should start by defining what we mean by cardiac arrest. So British Heart Foundation uh, give a very brief description of it. Cardiac arrest is when your heart suddenly stops pumping blood around your body. If only everything was that simple, Matt, in medicine, life would be uh, life would be nice and easy for us. But ultimately, that is essentially what we are we are dealing with with cardiac arrest. Right? It's somebody's sudden uh, lack of mechanical activity pushing oxygenated blood around their body. Yeah, yeah, very much. And um, we are there to sort of act as the heart as such we are there as the pump yeah so we're taking over over that job and it's a, there's a lot involved in this and i guess when most people think of paramedics this is probably the one 
the one job and the one situation that we're probably most associated with. And, and I remember um, an A&E doctor once telling me that, that we're the pros at this, we're the experts. And that's why there's a, several paramedics now that work as resuscitation officers in, in uh, emergency departments across the country. I guess for those that haven't yet been on placement or those that have, have only done limited placement, as much as this is the the stereotypical job, in reality, how often do you sort of anecdotally, do you think we, we come across cardiac arrests? Um, it's slightly different for me now, but when, when I was on the road, I would say maybe one every three to six months. Um, with heart, we go out the we go out to them a bit more regularly, uh, mainly for extrication purposes. But then, obviously, patients aren't always stable, so we get involved in that way, um, and we sort of uh, able to respond to local cardiac arrests. So within heart, we sort of tend to go to them a bit more than sort of your average road crew. But yeah, I would say maybe one to every three to six months is probably at what you would average. Which is quite low, isn't it? Considering, again, I think most people imagine that that's the kind of thing we're doing all day, every day. And of course, if you're a student paramedic on placement, one every three to six months, you've got to be on placement at that particular time for that to happen. Now, of course, some students mm. get lucky or unlucky, depending on how you look at it and, and get yeah. more exposure. But it's not uncommon now to have students go the whole three or four years, depending on their their route, and not actually experience a, a cardiac arrest. It's one of those things, I guess, that um, you, you can't overly prepare for, right? The, 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 the sights, the sounds, everything that's actually yeah. involved is is different to what you might experience in a, a university lab, for example. Yeah, experiencing like for the first time, it's sort of one of those jobs you'll never forget. Um, and, you, and you're right, like the sight of it, the, like it's just small details. Like my very first cardiac arrest, I, when I started doing the compressions, the ribs broke and I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, so I stopped. I was like, oh, what's happened? I've, I've done something wrong here. And they were like, no, let's just carry on. But it's little things sort of like that that you, uh, you, they can't simulate in a in a classroom. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. And it's other things like the environment you're working in, small spaces, uh, you know, family members screaming at you or having to deal with members of the public and all those sort of external factors. Uh, you, it's very difficult to uh, simulate in a classroom yeah yeah of course and those external factors those human factors as you say are, are different for for every arrest but the the process that we try to follow is is very much methodical and it's probably the the sort of the the pinnacle of algorithms that we follow in the ambulance service and i suppose intentionally so that we've got that step-by-step -step process to follow um when the proverbial is hitting the fan as it, as it often does during the cardiac arrest. I suppose if we break each step down, so before we get to the point of even following those, those recess algorithms, we've got that initial, um, that initial situation whereby we need to confirm what it is we're actually dealing with. And that's where we, we feed in the, the primary survey, which is anyone that's done a first aid at work course will be familiar with the primary survey. It's that kind of underpinning mnemonic that we tend to follow that, that we can use to approach any patient methodically and you mentioned there about the fact that we might find ourselves in in small spaces it might not necessarily be a typical environment that we find ourselves in I guess anecdotally from my experience with the ambulance service it seems to nine times out of ten be in small toilets that people go into <laughs> cardiac arrest um, and we've got those challenges so you know following that kind of primary survey we know of course that we start with 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 danger if we're doing the doctor ABC approach 
as you're approaching that scene, outside of obvious danger, such as, I don't know, the building's on fire or the roof's about to collapse, what kind of things are going through your mind as you're, you're first approaching that scene of a potential arrest? It's, it's probably something we... Um... So we just walk in and we do automatically, don't we? Um, yeah, so pilot, yeah. I, me personally, I, I, I don't think right danger, right? Looking for dangers round is sort of you walk in there and like say for example, sort of traumatic cardiac arrest. You know, there's cars coming up, cars on the roads or um, that sort of thing. But if you walk into a house, um, if there's a patient laying in, in the middle of the floor with nothing around him you know it's going to be pretty safe um i suppose from a student point of view you want to be like obviously looking is it safe to operate in as in is there i don't know is there a tv going to fall on your head is there you know dogs dogs are probably the the biggest one isn't it when they get very protective over their family members um and hopefully the control center would have told them to lock away but you, you just never know um i mean outside are you going to fall down the ditch are you going to get hit by a car is it raining like lightning all those sort of stuff but i think danger is it's probably probably an easier one it's but it's more probably common sense really isn't it yeah absolutely you're quite right we tend to go into to autopilot don't we with uh with danger it's it's one of those things i always find that it's easy to to miss when we're being assessed uh whether that be yeah. at university yeah. or with a trust tend to just pile straight in but of course in reality you'd like to think you'd be a bit more more honed in but if this is your first cardiac arrest it, it's you know you've got that potential of being blinkered and not necessarily yeah. focusing on yeah, what's going yeah, on, no, on around you so yeah, and there are mnemonics that can help us here. I know some people tend to follow the SMART approach um, under danger. So this is looking at uh, safety mechanism, any additional resources that might be required, uh, rules yeah. and regulations to consider, and then triage as well if it, there is more than one patient. And of yeah. course, PPE is something that we should be considering still, even though we're allegedly out of COVID now. PPE is something that, that would fall into that safety safety bracket as well. Yeah, and then we move on to uh, response. So, as you're, if you picture the scene, Matt, you're you're, yeah. you're walking into someone's house. Um, they are they've they're lying on the floor, nice open room, plenty of space around them. What's going through your mind? It's a safe environment, as far as you can see. What are you looking at with that patient as you're walking through? You walk up, walk up to the patient, give him a shake, shout loudly. Uh, can you hear me? there's uh, no verbal response uh, that's when you move on to your painful stimulus uh, I always got uh, taught in the eye socket I don't know if that's changed recently yeah I um, think this probably varies from area to yeah. area I know that some places it's a firm shake of the shoulders some people still yeah. do the trapezius squeeze others have got pinching in the ears as you yeah. mentioned they've got the eye socket so there'll be regional variations but you're looking for that response beyond um, that kind of that, that auditory hello can you hear me yeah so if you get uh, no verbal or uh, uh, pain response and that's when you sort of move it on to your look listen feel so we've we've got no response from this patient uh it's as safe as far as we we can tell um we're following that kind of Dr. ABC approach. So next, we're coming on to, uh, to to the A for airway. And at this point, we're not. We haven't confirmed a rest yet, so we're not worrying about any kind of advanced airway management or anything like that. Just a simple kind of look in the mouth, head tilt, chin lift. Are we talking at this point before we we move on to to anything else? So um, if we go 
maybe step by step. So look, um, so you look, quick, quickly look in the airway, put your ear to the mouth, um, and then you're feeling for any breath on your cheek. You're looking at the chest to see if you can feel any rise and fall, and um, also listening to see if you can hear any uh, breath movement as well. So we're looking for that that respiratory effort at that point, and there's there's that sounds nice and simple, and of course it helps us follow that um, that nice methodical process. But they uh, there's one slight curveball that it likes to throw in there occasionally, and that's agonal breathing that we can sometimes yes. potentially experience. And this is one of those ones you, you know you talked about the first time you did the rest, uh, the patient's ribs broken. You wasn't sure if that was normal. In my experience, agonal breathing is one of those ones that can be really hard to call even if you have experienced multiple cardiac arrests mm. because my my approach to agonal breathing is that kind of idea of a fish being out of water making yeah. those kind of those movements but not actually actually breathing you will have experienced agonal breathing a lot more than me how would you describe agonal breathing to a student so just on its own like you say it's going to be hard to sort of go yeah that's definitely agonal breathing sometimes but it is that gasping motion there's like barely any chest movement um, and it's the color of the patient sometimes as well so it's sort of uh, just incorporating everything together and um and if you're unsure um just just start it's going to be better for the patient if you start rather yeah. than if you don't and delay that um resuscitation effort but yeah it's, it's, it's like a like you say that's a good description of it it's like that gasping uh that fit, fish out of the bowl sort of yeah and it's I, I it's it does take a bit of confidence doesn't it at this point to go that's not effective breathing but i think what you said there is is absolutely key which is this isn't effective breathing and therefore this patient is not exchanging gases appropriately as they as they should do so once we once we've confirmed that there's no adequate respiratory effort what what's our what's our kind of next stage do we need to do anything with pulses or anything like that or do we just go there's no there's no work of breathing there for this patient's in arrest uh so yeah i normally as i'm doing the look listen feel i normally feel for a, a carotid pulse as well um so uh, you do that for up to 10 seconds. Um, and once that you, that's when you confirm cardiac arrest. Um, if you're on your own, call for help, attach the pads. And if you're working in a crew, that's when you sort of um, work simultaneously. Um, sort of uh, confirm with control first so you can get the uh, appropriate resources sort of sent to you like backup or HEMS. Um, but that's when you start attaching pads and starting uh, compressions so now we've kicked into to action mode at this point we we've confirmed that this is an arrest so we've got no respiratory effort um and and no pulse activity at all there so you, you you've you've checked for up to 10 seconds no respiratory um and, and no apparent pulse so then we we jump on to um as you quite rightly mentioned there we we start doing uh, chest compressions um, and trying to get some pads on and this is one of those jobs you yeah. kind of hope you've got a student for here isn't it because it gets very busy very quickly now right it, yeah, yeah, it gets um, the first few minutes, say five minutes, are probably the most chaotic uh, because you're trying to get everything into place. Um, but I think that's the beauty with uh, the cardiac arrest algorithms is it, it's one, um, everyone gets trained the same way, isn't it? So you could have people from different areas and you all know the set way of doing it. Uh, so once 
you start sort of chest compressions. Uh, your crewmate should hopefully know, right, we need to get the pads on. Um, if you've got that third person, get on the airway. Um, but it's all about communication as well. So if you are a bit unsure, hopefully the most senior person on the scene will sort of direct you saying, okay, can you start compressions? I'm going to get the pads on. Okay, could you get it on the airway? Right, let's assess for the rhythm. So it's sort of uh, working, working as that team, uh, communicating well with each other um, and sort of uh, conducting your sort of procedures as you should really. Yeah, and I guess using that manpower will determine how much we focus on sort of basic life support before moving up to, to some more advanced options. And yeah. I guess the fact that you mentioned about confirming with controls, so we can get those additional resources running will speed up that that process. Sticking with the sort of the, the basic life support initially, if it's just, just you and your, your crewmate, for example. So one of you at this point is doing chest compressions and obviously on a, an audio only podcast, we can't really discuss chest compressions too much. It's one of those techniques that you uh, you fine tune uh, with, within your um, within your training. For those of you that, that do like figures, uh, the guidelines suggest that on an adult, we should be looking at uh, between five and six centimeters of the chest depth at a rate of between 100 and 120 times per minute. I'm not for one second suggesting, Matt, that we should be getting a ruler out at this point and, uh, mm. and measuring to make sure that we've gone five to six centimetres. Do, do you think it's fair to say that chest compressions is one of those skills that you just you fine-tune, you get into your own pattern? And, and even if, a bit like riding a bike, even if you, you only do it a couple of times a year, it just becomes second nature after a while. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, even just practising on mannequins, uh gives you a good idea of um, how, how like the depth you need to do it. Uh, but uh, hopefully with other trusts as well, the, you can utilize the puck as well. Um, so if you can get that on um, as soon as possible, um, that'll give you um, real-time feedback on uh, if you're doing the depth of compressions correctly. Um, and that's really useful. Um, but I think some mannequins, they have sort of real-time feedback as well yeah. um, about yeah. your depth and your recoil and that sort of thing. Um, obviously, you're not going to do the same depth of compressions as on someone who's frail to someone who's obese. So it's trying to sort of work out that happy medium, I suppose, for all different size patients as well. Yeah, and, and and adapting to that situation, it's. I suppose you know you you already mentioned one thing about about the you know the the rib cage potentially being quite fragile and breaking. And I suppose if you've never done chest compressions, you can't you can prepare for it in terms of the technique on mannequins. But it's it's different, isn't it? On a on a on a on a real real person. And and I, although mine was 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 a good few years back now, I can still remember the first time I did chest compressions. It's a bit like. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of you. You feel like you always remember your, your first one. It's it's yeah. different, isn't it, to a mannequin in terms of how it feels? And as you quite rightly mentioned, there, people's physical makeup means that that no two lots of compressions are the same, albeit the technique is is similar. Yeah, most most definitely, especially on elderly patients. Um, you know, their their ribs are always breaking. Like the people who have concave chests, that's a uh, weird situations be in, I suppose, as well. Um, and obese patients, you pretty much have to be jumping on their chest sort of to get the correct depth. Um, but yeah, it's, it is a really surreal experience. Um, 
even now, um, when you're doing chest compressions and uh, sort of patients, you have to sort of sit back sometimes and go, well, I'm actually doing this. Mm. On somebody's loved one. And I suppose the, the other thing as well is what people don't necessarily give enough credit to is just how physically demanding chest compressions are, even on a patient that is uh, potentially quite frail. The actual act itself doesn't seem like a lot physically, but it really takes it out of you quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. And the, I mean, that goes back to the point why we have to change every uh, t- two minutes. It can become exhausting, especially if you're doing that over. Like some arrests can go on for an hour, two hours. So, mm. can you just imagine doing that for an hour, two hours? You'd just be, yeah, all sweat by the end of it, wouldn't you? Absolutely, and we're being blessed with some lovely thirty degrees temperatures <laughs> yeah. as we're recording this. So, certainly not the kind of day to be uh, be needing to do that. But it is worth bearing in mind that the it, it physically it does take its its toll. Um, and again, often you know after I've been doing a, a potentially long session of chest compressions you wake up the next day feeling like you've you've done a session at the gym it is um it does take it out of you so we've got somebody on chest compressions uh in this yeah. two-person scenario before this second cruise turned up uh, person two then would be you mentioned getting the pads on a few a few things to consider here such as um pad safety so looking for uh, jewelry uh, patches um potentially needing to remove uh, bras as well if this is a, a patient who's wearing one um yeah. there are a couple of positions that we can place the pads but sort of anterior and, and lateral seem to be the the kind of sort of the initial uh, take um are there any times where you might need to fine tune that position in and, and maybe look at the position they're in uh one that springs immediately to mind is uh if you get a refractory period of vf uh that's when you can start changing pad position so uh they recommend uh anterior and posterior um uh, similar to a child um or you can do one under both armpits uh that's more for if um uh, the patient's got severe burns uh but he, yeah. he, again they can use it as a uh, different position if they haven't sort of refractory periods of VF or VT. Yeah. Okay. And and if if we go back to our kind of uh, run of the mill typical, uh, I would say good cardiac arrest. There's, there's no such thing, but a cardiac arrest that's easy for us to to work with. We've got a patient here uh, with a nice clear chest. There's no extra considerations around uh, pad safety, so we go for that anterior lateral position. Um, and again, I feel like at this point it takes a little bit of confidence, particularly if this is a, a public arrest, because if this is a, a patient that is, for example, wearing a bra, at this point we need to expose that that patient completely. And if I'm a 18, 19 year old student, that, that takes a bit of confidence at this point, right, to step in. But it is vital that we we kind of highlight that that we need that sort of area to work with and we need that that upper torso completely exposed. Yeah, my yeah, most definitely. And it's uh, it's extremely important to get the pads in the correct position as well. So yeah, didn't uh, in those sort of early stages, uh, I suppose dignity uh, gets thrown out the window a little bit um, if you can't resolve it quickly. Like um, if you can't, if there's no one to hold up blankets or that, uh, because we sort of we've got a, a worst case scenario situation in front of us, and um, yeah, dignity goes out the window as such. But it's vitally important to get the uh, pad position right uh, just below the collarbone and in the pretty much the v6 position underneath the armpit 
Yeah, and I suppose most patients uh, who would potentially be needing to have their chest exposed would would argue that that's a, a fair trade off if it means that we could potentially get them to to be going home with their their loved ones again um, after this no, this cardiac know. arrest episode. So it's definitely something that we need to do. Um, okay, so we've got uh, we've got the pads on um, at this point. Then all eyes turn over to our monitor where we'll find potentially a host of rhythms. And again, on a, an audio only podcast, it's a challenge to uh, to talk about rhythms. But I guess the key that we need to focus on here is that there's there's four that that, that we would be dealing with potentially um, that, that we to keep things nice and simple. Two of which we can do something about, and two of which we can't. Um, is there much difficulty in terms of identifying those rhythms? So we, we know that there's four that, that we're potentially dealing with here. Is it normally pretty obvious, or do you have to spend a bit of time looking, thinking, well, I don't know if that's that's VF or is that you know PA? How difficult do you find to, to read rhythms? I think determining between non-shockable and shockable is quite easy. Um, when you're determining between VF and VT, that can be quite difficult sometimes because uh, you get different versions of VT that look similar to VF. So, for example. Um, polymorphic VT, so to source the points, uh, where it can be um, different magnitudes of the waveform. Um, so in five seconds, it may look like VF. But I think the important the important thing is, it, is you recognise that it is a shockable rhythm and that you shock it. Um, determining between PA and uh, asystole, uh, that should be quite straightforward. One's just a flat line, uh, and another one, and the PEA, um, it'll, they'll have some sort of recognisable sort of QRS complex. Um, so yeah, VT um, is normally wide and regular. Uh, VF is normally sort of just chaotic. It looks like a toddler scribbled over a bit of paper, as such. Um, uh, but yeah, it's when you get in into sort of like those disaster points that's when it's maybe a little bit more difficult to sort of recognize but as long as you do recognize it that's the most important thing yeah so there's no no delay in, in delivering that shark and i guess we've already checked for a pulse of course you mentioned when we were we were doing our um abc but if we have got that um that vt that, that pops up on the monitor worth just sort of rechecking for a pulse at this point because of course we can yeah, get post vt definitely. which which would be unshockable so let's get make it nice and simple we've got that we've got that toddler drawing rhythm we've got vf i think that's a really good description actually a toddler drawing that will that will stick with me um so we've got that that vf so at this point we know we need to shock and the idea here i presume is that we're delivering a controlled current to try and restart the heart back into a a, a normal rhythm which is conducive with with life right yeah so um we want to Obviously, identify the rhythm quickly and we want to sh uh, shock it quickly because it's been shown that the earlier you can shock a patient, the uh, more likely they're going to have a better outcome. Um, and just going through sort of the protocol, sort of check the monitor, everyone hands off, have a quick look within five seconds, someone restarts compressions as you're charging the machine. Um, and then the person is going to deliver the shock, make sure no one's touching it, oxygen away if it's uh, through just the BVM, um, and then you sort of deliver the shock and it's straight back on the chest. 
Okay. So it's that that's the key business. Nobody touching the patient for that rhythm check and for obviously delivering the shock because they won't yeah. thank you if you uh, if you press that shock button whilst they're <laughs> whilst they're still touching the patient. It's uh, and again, you know, throwing back to that kind of if I'm a sort of 18, 19 year old student surrounded by potentially older mentors, it, it takes confidence, doesn't it, to be like, right, off the chest, I'm shocking and you've got to be yeah. you know, you've got to be be firm at that point and be quite authoritative. It's um Obviously, it's important to mention here that the initial uh, power of the shock varies from trust to trust. Um, so it is worth just making sure you're familiar with local policy. Um, some trusts will vary the uh, the strength of that initial shock. And also there are different models um, of monitors that we use in this country. So therefore, uh, it would be wrong of us to try and pin down specific uh, jewels at this rate. So just make sure you're familiar with your, your local trust uh, policies there. Of course, if you are in the community setting, you may at this point be using uh, an automated external defibrillator, which is uh, will, will manage that shock for you. But the process up until now is exactly the same, minus not needing to... Um, visually recognize that rhythm because the the AED will do it for us so we've got that initial shock done we've got some CPR on the go we've got some compressions on the go second crew turn up so now we can potentially look at starting to manage more advanced life support techniques so I guess the place that that most of us would start now would be moving on to to airway and I guess in my experience with the recess algorithms airway and breathing are, are pretty much interlinked here um, we start to introduce uh, adjuncts that combine the two so so talk us through to airway then how would we how would we manage that in a in an arrest uh we start at the i suppose the least least invasive procedure first um but we want to sort of position uh the patient's head to sort of optimize the uh airway uh so generally speaking it's just a sort of um a pillow underneath the head uh, sort of you, say your earlobe to the centre of your uh, sternum um, and then from there you want to pop in uh, an OPA um, so obviously measuring from the teeth down to the corner of your jaw people sometimes skip head and go straight for an eye gel but I find uh, just getting a OPA in first with a BVM um, and then start doing your 30 to 2 is a quicker process than actually getting an eye gel set up. Because mm. in reality, you've got to think you've got to open that pouch, your resuscitation pouch, find the correct size, opening the eye gel, you know, getting the lube on the on the case, getting the lube up, getting it lubed up, getting the catheter mount, getting the end tidal set up and filter. So even though it is a quick process once you get it in, the sort of setup to doing that can be quite time consuming. So I find me personally is to get an IPA in straight away with a BVM and you be ventilating the patient pretty rapidly. Um, and then once compressions are ongoing, that's when you can start setting up your eye gel if you don't have uh, someone's hand who can do that for you. Yeah, really good tip that. I think any student that's ever done uh, an advanced life support or, or an ILS OSCE will know that getting that airway set up is the the bit where it's all fingers and thumbs and suddenly time becomes of the essence. So that's just a really good tip is let's get an adjunct in, in in the form of an OPA and then 
we've at least we've got something there and then so once we get that second crew we've got a bit more time and there's a bit less pressure to to get that eye gel in place there are of course other um adjuncts we could consider um such as the mpa and yeah, going right up that scale there's there's some trusts where we still use intubation although this is yeah. um phasing out and it is quite hit and miss across the the uk um Intubation, I guess, is 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 kind of something that we we won't focus on too much purely because it's it's not uh, uniform now. But if we if we focus on eye gels, I guess there's a few advantages that we've got with eye gels there, and it gives us that that closed circuit, um, which helps us when when we come to delivering those shocks and, and oxygen safety um, allows for kind of continuation with with compressions. But I guess the, the key one for us is that it allows us to introduce um, capnography, which, to my knowledge, is is used nationwide, um, albeit in terms of different monitoring techniques but once we've got the eye gel in place we can monitor things like capnography and that gives us more of an indication in terms of how that how that how that resource algorithm is playing out at this point yeah most definitely so uh, with any sort of advanced uh, airway so from eye gel um, upwards we want to be getting capnography in because that's essentially that's golden standard um, and that's going to tell us whether we're ventilating the patient correctly, essentially. Um, numbers vary. Um, I was told at university that anything above 1.5 is fine during an arrest. Uh, if you look at the Resus Council guidance, they say anything sort of above 1.33 is fine. Anything below that is is, is not good. Um, but yeah, and then you've got uh, sort of different waveforms you need to, uh, people need to be aware of. Uh, but essentially, if you're getting that box waveform, um, that's, that's good. I mean, you mentioned there as well about the BVM. The other advantage we've got with the um, with the iGel in place is we can use catheter mounts and we can get that BVM uh, connected as, as one big circuit, which gives us A and B intertwined. And it's important, of course, when we're, we've got any airway adjunct in place that we're, we're kind of checking that it's... Um, that it's in place appropriately through looking for that chest rise or fall, uh, listening to the chest. And also if we have got capnography attached at this point, uh, looking to see that as we're oxygenating the patient to see if that waveform uh, changes. So we've got good A and B management. We've got chest compressions on the go and we are shocking. So it's the final kind of advanced skill that we can introduce as paramedics um, or as second or third year student paramedics is the introduction of some drugs at this point. Now, there's not actually a lot uh I don't believe in terms of drugs to consider when it comes to to cardiac arrest. If we just disregard oxygen for a second, oxygen, of course, would be coming through the BVM at 100%. Um, and if we just disregard reversible causes for a moment, we're only really looking at two here, right? We've got adrenaline and amiodarone. Yeah, um, and they're the two main drugs we're really going to be uh, given during uh, cardiac arrest anyway. Um Fluids used to be a big thing, but that's sort of been phased out now unless it's needed. But yeah, adrenaline and amiodarone is the big ones. Yeah, so it would be it would be an hour long episode if we started talking about the different times to use adrenaline and amiodarone. So yeah. if you are at that stage of uh, if you are at that stage of your your student journey, 
it, I suppose it's just making sure you know when to use each of those. So, of course, adrenaline we can use um, in any situation in terms of shockable, non-shockable. But amiodarone for us is a drug that we look to use in shockable only. So we've got all of this on the go. We've got our A, B uh, and drugs being managed. We've got chest compressions. We've got shocks being done. How often are we reassessing that rhythm? How often are we looking back at the monitor and going, let's reassess where we're at at the moment? Uh, so, yeah, we, we'll be rechecking every two minutes um, okay. to see what's going on, essentially. See if those drugs have worked or the patients in ROSC, uh, see if it's a shockable rhythm or uh, not. If we need to keep going, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and then what, once this process has calmed down a little bit and we've got this methodical uh, process being taken, we can start to look at what's put this patient in that situation in the first place. So we can start to consider uh, reversible causes. These are uh, commonly known in pre-hospital sector as the four H's and four T's. And whilst we can't do much about some of them, it's just recognising the potential cause and having that discussion around what's potentially put uh, the patient in this situation in the first place if it's not obvious for example if it was uh, a traumatic arrest right i've recently done a resource council uh als course and uh a good tip they sort of gave me was uh rather than going through every single one is go to the immediate one that you think the causes and that's you're only going to gain that through the history and sort of the build up to the cardiac arrest and uh see what you can do for that um, but essentially, uh, it's just reading off a list, really, and seeing if you can rectify it. Uh, so hypoxia, we've already dealt with, hypovolemia, um, hypo, hyperkalemia, that's going to be mainly through history, and there's nothing we can really do for that. Um, hypo and hyperthermia, I mean, it's quite self-explanatory, isn't it? Warm them up or cool them down. And, and then when you start getting to tension neurophoresis, that's when you're sort of looking at uh, decompressing, thrombosis, heart and lungs. We can't do anything for that, but hens can. Uh, same with tamponades and toxins. It's just a note that we don't stop until they get to the hospital, really, um, yeah. unless it's Narcan. Unless you have so the drug we can give. And these reversible causes start to feed into what our, our kind of plan might be for this patient, whether it's a, you know, a let's just go type uh, situation or whether or not it's a let's stay and play to, to coin that phrase um, and whether or not it's something that we can do anything with um, on scene. And I, and I suppose there where we get those nuances in place around whatever the situation is that we're being presented with at that time. Um, let's just say that that imaginary patient that we've got, um, we've done a fantastic recess algorithm we followed the process really really well um, we noticed the waveform start to change on the on the capnography and next time we assess this patient's rhythm actually it looks like they now have um, a sustainable heart rhythm so this patient at this point then would be uh, what we know as ROSC so return of spontaneous circulation what's our kind of initial management other than of course high-fiving each other at this point what's our management <laughs> for this patient yeah so once once you stop patting each other on the back, uh, that's when you sort of <laughs> going into your, essentially your doctor A, B, C, uh, D, E again. Um, so you got, by the book, you've got 10 minutes to do that in um, until you start moving the patient. Uh, main reason is being uh, those first 10 minutes are the most unstable uh, period for that patient and they're likely to go back into cardiac arrest. Uh, but so you start essentially start from the top. So um, we obviously know there's no dangers. 
um, check to see if there's any formal response, even if it's uh, painful uh, stimuli. Um, and then you go down to your airway. So um, recheck the airway. You get a good caprinography waveform. Uh, is the eye gel still in situ? Um, has it become clogged with sort of blood, vomit, uh, excess secretions? Um, and then you move down um, to your breathing um, and sort of uh, depending on how you've been taught, I was got taught flaps, but you sort of start to go through that, uh, like feeling, looking, auscultating, uh, get a SATS probe on, uh, make sure the O2 cylinders sort of full, full or at least half full, uh, depending on the extrication time. Um, and then obviously circulation, you want to be checking for your 12 lead ECG, your blood pressure, um, any fluids at this point. Um, and then, yeah, go down to D, and that's when you start doing temperatures, BMs, um, GCS, um, and then E is more, probably at that point, it's more education um, than exposure, isn't it? Because we've sort of done that before, anyway. Yeah. But yeah, so it's just going through it methodically um, um, and just doing it like a primary survey, essentially, and rechecking everything's in place. Um, and just keeping a close eye on that heart rhythm, essentially. Yeah, and I suppose not. Uh, you mentioned the the sort of real the the chance of potentially this patient rearresting, so sort of not getting complacent and uh, you know high fiving sort of too hard just now. Um, I, I guess there are, of course, circumstances around what we've talked around here that that we we just don't have time to cover. So, for example, drowning patients, uh, patients who are pregnant, so on and so forth. So, it is important that those special considerations are, are considered uh, when you are learning your uh, your ALS management around. Uh, cardiac arrest um, and of course the other thing Matt is is not all of these patients are what we would call a workable arrest in the first place right but not every single patient that's in cardiac arrest is a patient that will will get this treatment in any case not every, every patient we go to um, we are going to be able to do sort of um, CPR on um, so it's probably w w worth to know right? going over the uh, seven recognizable sizes of death um, so rigor mortis, um, your first one, so is patient stiff, uh, hypostasis, uh, pooling of blood, uh, incineration, so are they charcoal or not, uh, if decapitation, has their head come off, um, massive cranial and cerebral destruction, so um, a massive head injury that um, it's not going to be, you're not, <laughs> not going to come back from. Uh, decompositions, obviously, although decomposing, and can never pronounce this one, uh, hemicorporectomy. So, are they right. essentially yeah, cut in right. half? Yeah. Um, but on top of that, um, you've also got the uh, different times when we, when we might not start. So, things like um, have they got a DNAR? Have they got an advanced? Um, Directive, uh, so I think they call them ADRTs. Um, so essentially, it's just a paperwork that states they don't want resuscitation being commenced on themselves. Uh, advanced directives, end of life as well. So if a patient has, is coming has an advanced um, medical condition, say like advanced COPD, um, if there's no bystander CPR for at least 15 minutes before we arrive as well. So that's another. 
things to consider when we turn up on the scene. So it's, it's mainly looking at those seven signs of death and then the sort of the added ones are DNARs or any form of advanced directive, say they don't want resuscitation starting in the cells or the end of life patient, say the terminal ill, terminal patient with cancer or you know COPD, heart failure, renal failure. If they've got dialysis machines, you know, it's probably not realistic that they're going to have a quality of life when they come back. Yeah, it's worth noting as well, we, we have got uh, episodes in the pipeline around advanced directives and, and DNA CPRs, as well as looking at some of the more uh, finite details that we've talked about here, such as airway adjuncts uh, and also access, which we've not not really touched on, but we certainly will do uh, when we do our access episode, which is going to be uh, quite interesting, I feel. Uh, it's important as well, I guess, just to, to kind of wrap all of this up, Matt, once we've once we've finished this situation is recognizing that this isn't, as you mentioned, an everyday job, although lots of people assume it is. Um, and actually it can be quite traumatic for, for those that have been involved and um, that it's important that as a, as a team, um, so we're looking at at least four members of staff here, if not more, um, that as a team that, that there's that kind of debrief if possible and just that chat around how everyone's feeling and how everyone's coping. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's um, extremely important this, uh, to get back and, debrief about the situation um get things off your chest if you didn't feel things went right or just generally how you feel if you're upset you know it's a typical british british thing isn't it go back to station have a cup of tea and everything's all right with my trust we have from officers they call them so as so essentially people um like colleagues that'll get in contact with you just to see if you're right in the coming days or you know other charities like task can get in contact with you if you're struggling mentally or your mentor just talking to your crewmate but yeah deep debriefing is is really important because that's where we can learn the most from um, yeah and i think i think this is this is this is a really key point because it's it's easy for for mentors that have been on the road for 30 40 years to forget that potentially that's the first time that student has been yeah. in that situation and, and had to do chest compressions so you know don't be afraid to to chat uh, through it with somebody just because you know you might experience this in the job doesn't mean you'll necessarily be okay dealing with it um so it's important to to listen to yourself in terms of how you're feeling and as you quite rightly mentioned uh, there matt you've got the ambulance staff charity and also the trust uh, and universities also have um, welfare uh, processes in place to help in situations like this. And I guess the, the last caveat really is that these algorithms we talk about, as much as they're helpful in a crisis like this, they do change. Uh, and no sooner as we click um, submit on this episode, uh, there'll, there'll probably be a change, right? That's how it always seems to work. Um, so it's just important to keep uh, keep up to date with the Research Council and the JR Calc uh, for changes. And of course, there's always local variations as well, Matt, isn't there, around the, the policies for cardiac arrest? Yeah, so you've got, you got three main resources in that regard. You, our, our one would be JR Calc, you've got Research Council and the European Resuscitation Council as well. Um, they're quite good, the uh, European ones, because they go in a bit more detail if you want that bit of extra knowledge. Um, but yeah, they're the three main resources. And yeah. of course, Revive, Graham. <laughs> Revive, yeah, absolutely. And, and <laughs> yeah. because you, you, you do so much on the kind of life support algorithms it is actually a really good way of visualizing some of the stuff that we've we've talked about yeah. there um you've already given us some some brilliant tips particularly around things like teamwork and stuff like that is there anything else that you would 
you would kind of wish somebody had told you as a student paramedic around uh, cardiac arrest and their management or the potential aftermath? Yeah, the, there's a few few things actually. Um, I'm a big big advocate um, advocator, sorry, of uh, adopting that team leader role. Uh, when I first started doing everything, every, every, there was no real leadership, but I know people are pushing it more and more, and it seems to be getting better. But cardiac arrests run so much more smoothly and easier if someone just steps back, hands off, and just directs it. Hello. Start engine immediately. <laughs> there's your run lock going off. <laughs> You've been heckled by an ambulance. Hello. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's adopting that team leader position. Um, and a little, I suppose, tips is when you're ventilating a patient, not to overinflate, um, so not to sort of administer too much oxygen. You've got to think those bags are roughly about 1,200 mils of air. And the average adult's about 500 mils. So if you're forcing all that air, you're eventually going to sort of cause barotrauma leading to uh, tension neurophoresis. So just remember to gently squeeze it. Look for minimal chest rising fall and look for your capnograph waveform as well. Um, and I think that they're, they're the two points that immediately spring to mind. Um, yeah, it's e easy to see that big bag is not the BVM and, and think that you've got to squish it down, but obviously that's not the you know. Yeah, it's just it's on that on the viewers can't see, but it's just a small squeeze, just enough mm. to sort of inflate yeah. those lungs. But yeah, they're two most um, getting the team leader uh, into position and probably the BVM. Um, and there, there there are other little, I suppose, caveats, um, but they're they're more probably things that people pick up on as time goes on as they go through yeah perfect yeah. anything else matt that you would want to you would want to cover any kind of key points that you feel we've missed or are you you happy with what we've covered there um no just uh, uh just to reinforce that um just to do the basics well that's uh, the most important things uh, to do chest compressions correctly at the correct depth at the correct rate um just get the pads on as, as quickly as you can uh, to see see what's going on um, and start oxygenating the patient as soon as possible. Typical, isn't it? <laughs> it's always the way. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK Student Paramedic Podcast and a huge thank you once again to Matt for joining me for this big subject. Uh, be sure to follow the podcast on the socials. You can find us on X and Facebook. And also, of course, be sure to check out Matt's wonderful work on TikTok and Instagram. Uh, thank you for joining me. Stay safe and see you next time. Mm -hmm.